In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Okay, good evening. Welcome. So tonight we dive into the translations of the texts. The fun part, right? I have a question. Uh, okay. I have a lot of questions, but okay. <laughs> it's been it's sort of been rattling around in my mind all day. It's probably a very simple answer, but what is the relationship between bodhicitta and and um, Buddha nature? Oh. one of the 64 million dollar questions and what was what was your hunch I think they're very similar but it seems that maybe well ultimate bodhicitta is buddhahood so right but relative bodhicitta is where it gets a little interesting because yeah, on the on the buddha nature scheme of things you have this fully uncovered partially covered and totally covered and where whereas with relative bodhicitta we sort of have this thing we're trying to i don't know establish uh like it's like it's a relative thing so it's not an un uh, it's not it's not a, a a permanent thing uh like buddha nature so i'm kind of curious what the relationship there is I like to think of them as uh, the Buddha nature is the ground and the fruition and bodhicitta is the path. That's an excellent answer. <laughs> I think that works pretty well. Um, and, and it's also interesting to see that uh, in terms of the historical evolution or appearance of the terms and the use of them, um, I think bodhicitta appears earlier and uh, as you know the uh, the skillful means of the bodhisattva the essence of the the uh, path or the being of the activity of the bodhisattva and then the idea of uh, Buddha nature appears and develops further to sort of uh, create a context for that. So bodhicitta is wisdom. Bodhicitta. Bodhicitta, no. Well, absolutely, bodhicitta is wisdom in a sense. Bodhi is wisdom. Chungchup. Chitta is either heart or mind depending on how you like to translate that, or uh, being, or, or um, yeah, it's really heart or mind, bodhicitta. And so it's the um, 
heart of enlightenment, the heart, or Bodhi is often the translation for enlightenment, um, the heart of wisdom, the heart of enlightenment, the mind of enlightenment. And, I was just about to say, once you add the heart part, then that's in wisdom with the compassion, which is enlightenment. Right? Like that. <laughs> you sort of mix, <laughs> just just like mix everything in there. <laughs> A sprinkle of this and that. <laughs> Anyway, so that is a good question to ponder, and I, uh, I find what I, what I offered a sort of helpful way to think about it. And so we dive into the translations of the text, and after Carl's long introduction, these should be a piece of cake, right? <laughs> but uh, it's interesting to see the same stuff coming up over and over again. And to see the difference in styles is, is also very interesting. And uh, Henrietta. Um, I think this question is easy. I was just um, wondering, what's this, What what is bold in bold face here and what is not? Yeah, in bold face are the statements that he feels really confident about. And then the rest of it is stuff, no, just kidding. The bold stuff is the root verses. His root verses? His root verses. His, oh. Rong Chung Dorje's root verses for the profound uh, inner reality and then the commentary, his commentary. And then his own commentary. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, that was easy. And um, I thought I would start by showing a couple of things. Uh, one is... You know, it's sort of amazing how complicated the, this whole presentation is. Carl's introduction, these texts, the whole Yogacara system is really a complicated system. I, th I think you'll agree. And, you know, it's like, why? Why is it things so complicated? And, you know, it's like if, if you look back, you know, you look at Nagarjuna, Take a, you know, one of the main topics tonight is the four conditions, the uh, dominant object and so forth condition. So how does Nagarjuna present these things? So here's how Nagarjuna presents the four conditions. It's the first chapter in his root verses of the middle way, Mulabhanyamaka Karika. Examination of Conditions, Chapter 1, from the Root Stanzas of the Middle Way, Mulamanyamaka Karaka, by Nagarjanads, from the Padmakara translation. Not from itself, not from something else, not from both, not without a cause. Does anything whatever arise anywhere at any time? Sorry, does anything whatever anywhere at any time arise? Not from itself, not from something else, not from both, not without a cause. Does anything whatever, anywhere that. So, you know, first opening verse is just total dismissal of the whole idea of causation. <laughs> there are four conditions. The causal, the object, immediately preceding the dominant. There's no fifth. The intrinsic being of phenomena lies not in these conditions or in any others. When a thing or the thing itself has no existence, the other, its conditions, 
also lacks existence. There's no activity that has conditions. And without conditions, there's no activity. That which lacks activity is no condition. Neither do conditions have activity. Things arise dependently on these, which therefore are declared to be conditions. But inasmuch as things do not arise, how could these be non-conditions? So you sort of see where this is going? <laughs> it's, you know, it's just sort of like clearing the table completely of like the whole scheme of like the four conditions. You know, so what was the trajectory or the context that within which Nagarjuna presented this sort of uh, ab uh, ultimate just like undercutting of the whole conceptual framework was that there was a huge amount of um, uh, conceptual uh, categorization, systematization, success, yeah, that's easy for me to say. Um, you know, like the Abhidharma guys were just like endlessly convoluted about all of these different uh, lists and systems and how they, the different enumerations of them, how they interacted and so on and so forth. And in that process, they started to like miss the whole point of why the Buddha laid out these schemes and just ended up, you know, endlessly obsessing with uh, the fine details and arguments about them. And so Nagarjuna, and fixated on them as if they're real. And so Nagarjuna, uh, his skillful means was to clear the deck. Having done that, though, then it's like, okay, so uh, for the one student out of a thousand that sort of gets it when you clear the deck, you know, you undercut everything, and there's there's one person out of a thousand who, like, gains enlightenment. Oh, that's it. I got it. The others, the rest, like us or me, we, we, you know, we're still not enlightened. You know, we sort of got Nagarjuna's point intellectually, but it didn't, you know, produce the enlightenment that it was meant to. The the shock, the uh, existential shock. So then, how do we, you know, work with that situation? Well, we then try to explain to some, in some way, to some extent, how the whole thing comes about, how our experience comes about, what our experience is, what our mind is, what confusion is, how it arises, and most importantly, how it's dispelled. And so that's what we see here is uh, uh, the yoga, the whole Yogacara tradition, starting from Maitreya Sangha Vasubandhu, is then, well, let's try to give some explanation of these things. And uh, in the process, you see that it's basically like a circular system. I think you probably noticed that the things are sort of defined and explained in a sort of circular way. And ultimately, he doesn't really, you know, identify what's the cause of confusion, what's the source of confusion, how does it all arise, because there is no source. And so it's it's very much an experiential presentation of like, how do we understand what's going on in our mind and our experience in samsara in such a way that we can work on it? And uh, we don't, you know, there is no 
ultimate source and end. But if I have a framework, it can actually be very helpful for working with my mind in a skillful way that helps resolve fixation and doubt and confusion and suffering ultimately. So it's also helpful to look at when you dive into a text like this, what's the outline of the text? What are the topics? So we have a little lay of the land. You don't get lost in the forest. Sorry, you don't get lost in the trees, loose side of the forest, right? So here's a little outline from, uh, this is from, Elizabeth Callahan has translated this text, both the root and the commentary, in a different book called The Profound Inner Principles. Or the, yeah, The Profound Inner Principles, something like that. And um, we're going through chapters 1, 6, and 9. So here's the outline for chapter 1. The general presentation of causes and conditions. The main body is the nature of the pure and impure mind. The nature of mind, the manifestation of mind. The way delusion occurs. The presentation of the alia and its supported mentation and mental afflictions. Mentation being the general term or the term that's used for general mental activity and more specifically meaning the act, the, um, the entity of the sixth consciousness, the presentation of the six modes of consciousness and the sequence of the five skandhas, how the six modes of consciousness are deluded about objects, and then the sequence of the five skandhas. Then we have the presentation of the divisions of causes and conditions. There's the six causes and the four conditions, the causal dominant object and immediate conditions, and then the uh, divisions of the three phases, the impure, general presentation detailed, the way cyclic existence is produced, specific discriminations of the three realms, uh, the correlation of, cause, uh, of causes and results of the three realms, the summary, the dual phase, pure and impure, and then the utterly pure phase. And at the end of the chapter, we have the title of the chapter, <laughs> you know, where they say this, this was the, this is the end of the first chapter called blah, 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 from the text, blah, blah, blah. And then lastly, before we dive in, the four conditions, just so we, we know, get a feel for what are the four conditions, causal, dominant, object, immediate, what do those terms mean? Does anybody remember Peter Bragg? The guy with the laptop. Yes, 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 of course. Used to, used to sit in the front row all the time and like loved making the diagrams, right? He moved to Portugal. He did. He lives in Portugal now. He's like way out there. He's having a great life now. He's very happy in Portugal. Every once in a while I hear from him. Four conditions. He created this uh, wonderful scheme. And he tried to affiliate, affiliate them with like... Uh, what are the what are the entities that the conditions are talking about? So the causal conditions are um, 
are basically form the the objects of the six senses are the causal conditions the appearance of red the appearance of sound the appearance of thoughts or memories or concepts any of those things appearing in in uh within the range of the sense faculty that's that relates to that sense object is the causal condition simply put it's like light shining on an object reflects into our eyeball so he included the aggregates the 18 daughters 12 ayatanas sort of everything can be a causal condition the dominant condition, and he gave some alternate terms, the empowering, sometimes called condition, is the six modes of consciousness, hearing, smelling, uh, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and the sixth mind, and he gave a little gloss, conditioned and unconditioned phenomena, which is in the text, and we'll get to, it's sort of cool. And then the object condition, oh, I totally screwed up, I explained the first one as the object condition. The, the objects of our six faculties, their appearance is the object condition. Sorry about that. The causal condition is the underlying setup of the whole framework of uh, the alia conscious, of the eight consciousnesses that appear as aggregates, datus, ayatanas, and so forth, and that rest on the all-basis, aliyavijnana, and that rests on dharma datu, or suchness. And then the fourth one is this, this odd term, the immediately preceding condition. Now when we talk about uh, matter in the vaibhasha, uh, sorry, in the Sautrantika tradition and the Vaibhashika tradition, earlier of the four schools of Indian Buddhism, the two so-called uh, Hinayana schools, so-called. Vaibhashikas are atomists, Sautrantikas are the ones that cleave to the early sutras. They're both Sarvastavadins, everything exists. Sarva, everything, Asti, exists and then vadins is those who uh, profess or uh, hold the view of in their view a rock the the uh, immediately preceding condition of the rock in 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 the current moment is the rock in the last moment the rock, a rock in every moment, serves as the immediately preceding condition of the next mo moment of the rock. And every phenomenon is like that, that it serves as the immediately preceding condition for the next moment in the continuum of its continuum <laughs> of being whatever it is until it's interrupted. With the mind, it's a similar idea, but it's not rocks, it's the mind. The mind of one moment is the immediately preceding condition of the next moment, and um, conditions the next moment of mind in, this, in, a, in the aspect of like a causal sequence. You don't have like a rock in one moment that turns into a grasshopper in the next moment. There's a karmic link between phenomena in terms of their causal their uh, continuum 
um, you know, things like you plant a barley seed, you get a barley plant. You don't get a rice plant. So that idea of the immediately preceding condition. So in consciousness, it's whatever consciousness of any type that happens in the last moment is the immediately preceding condition that conditions the next moment. And the, the usual example is that like a sense consciousness in one moment leads to a thought about, a conceptual thought about the sense consciousness in the next moment. Okay, so with that little background, let's dive into the auto-commentary on the profound inner reality, starting on page 129, the introduction presenting the body of the treatise. So he skips a little bit, which you saw that was... Uh... Okay, so the stainless heart of the victor is being impure, pure, impure and pure, sorry, and utterly pure in due order is expressed as sentient beings, those who dwell on the path, and Tathagatas, respectively. Therefore, the actuality of this is to be realized. That is what is to be realized, and that's sort of the overall scheme of the text. That's what to be realized from the text. This is the Vajrayana subject. So, uh, once again, this is the philosophical framework for understanding the Vajrayana within the Kagyu tradition. That is very difficult to realize. It's in, this, this subject is embraced by the four inconceivable points, and we'll see those in a couple of minutes, and rests upon Buddha enlightenment. Here, Vajra refers to unchanging Buddhahood. <clears throat> and traveling on the path toward it means yana, which makes the children of the victors proceed there. Alternatively, because the indestructible Buddha heart is the basis from which all of samsara and nirvana never move away. Interesting statement. It is the Vajrayana. Because the indestructible Buddha heart is the basis from which all of samsara and nirvana never move away, it is the indestructible vehicle, Vajrayana. Since this matrix the uh, indestructible Buddha heart is not tainted by any stains at all. It is stainless. So you see the style of the auto-commentary is that he's going to give a sort of general commentary on the verse, and as he comes to specific terms, the translator, as is commonly done now these days, will bold those words that appeared in the root verse. You'll see that he's sort of giving a, a long explanation of each word, basically. Well, not each word, but a lot of words. Um, now, stainless, why is that boldest, bolded? It's not, uh, oh, sorry, it's in the very first line, the stainless heart of the, Buddha, of the victors. Because it is the nature of Buddhahood, it is called Buddha heart. It has three phases, the phase of sentient beings with impurity, the phase of bodhisattvas on the path, which is by virtue of their being endowed with certain degrees of both impurity and purity, and the phase of the utterly pure Tathagatas. These three aspects in which the Buddha heart appears are expressed by earlier scholars and citizens as many synonymous conventional terms, such as ground path and fruition. 
ground tantra, means tantra, and fruition tantra, the basic nature of entities as the ground, the stages of the path, and the stages of the arising of the fruition. So these three phases of pure, impure, both and pure, are basically ground path and fruition. You may wonder, what is the matter of being inconceivable here? The inconceivable point of the basic element. So this is the first one. There were four inconceivables. So the first is the inconceivable point of the basic element. Uh, is that the Buddha heart is primordially not tainted by any stains, but does not become Buddhahood until all afflictive and cognitive stains have been relinquished. So even though it's not affected by the stains, it doesn't manifest as Buddhahood until all stains are removed. The inconceivable point of enlightenment is that the basic element is associated with these stains since beginningless time. So the problem is we're paying attention to the stains. I am. I, was, I got oil on my shirt today and I immediately looked it up online. You put you dab it, and then you put baking soda on it. Sometimes they say put Dawn li uh, liquid. Yeah. Anyway, I'm obsessed with the stains. The um, inconceivable point of enlightenment is that the basic element is associated with these stains since beginningless time. But because these stains are adventitious, they're not established as any real substance. The inconceivable point of the qualities of enlightenment is that the 64 qualities of Buddhahood exist in all sentient beings right now in a complete way. But if they're not triggered through the condition of the immaculate dharmas, the natural outflow of the utterly stainless dharmadhatu, their power does not come forth. And these are very similar to the four inconceivable vows of the bodhisattva in the Zen tradition which I'm going to ask Brent to repeat for us in a minute. <laughs> um, the inconceivable point of enlightened activity is that there's no difference in enlightened activities, effortless, spontaneous, and non-conceptual operation in terms of all sentient beings and Buddhas being either the same or different. There's no difference in enlightenment's activities effortless, spontaneous, and non-conceptual operation in terms of all sentient beings and Buddhas being either the same or different. Yeah. Yes. Those, those brackets enclose Carl's words. That is the general idea, and he might say something about that somewhere. I didn't see it, but generally the, the tradition among translators is supposed to be that Brackets indicate what they add, the translator adds for clarification. And the, uh, the, the parentheses are supposed to be uh, part of, the, of what is translated. In this case, it feels a little bit questionable, uh, which is, uh, I think, why you're asking, because it's like, why would Rongjun Dorje put all this stuff in parentheses? Now, they don't have parentheses in Tibetan, by the mm. way. You know, so... Translators uh, sort of use parentheses uh, by, as a way of uh, indicating to an English-speaking or reading audience that those words in parentheses are parenthetical, i.e. Uh, 
worthy of being parenthesized. <laughs> so this is similar to the, the four inconceivable vows in the Zen tradition, right, that Brent is familiar with. What, how does it go, Brent? Uh, although all, all, the, all the Buddha qualities are uh, infinite, I vow to achieve them. Although the, the afflictions are infinite, I vow to eradicate them all, something like that. Although all the cockroaches in New York are infinite, I vow to eliminate them all. Something and, like and that. Beings are infinite, and I never. I vow to sell it. Yeah, something like that. Does it ring any bells? Uh, well, the way they do it at uh, Zen Mountain Monastery is: sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Desires are inexhaustible. I vow to put an end to them. The dharmas are boundless, I vow to master them. And the Buddha way is unattainable, I vow to attain it. That's great. That's just a, that's the same thing in a very poetic, condensed fashion and in a vow form. That's very cool. Thank you. Thus, its inconceivability is its being free from all expressions, yet serving as the basis for all expressions. In brief, the Uttara Tantra... Now, now, by the way, um, I didn't mention this earlier, but in this paragraph it begins, what is the matter of being inconceivable? The inconceivable point of the basic element. So basic element is in quotation parts. Quotation marks, sorry. I believe basic element is gotra. Because the, then he says the Buddha heart. That would be Tathagata Garba. So there's these two terms, gotra and Buddha heart. And gotra is like the disposition. You know, we sort of talked about Gotra versus Tathagata Garba a few times. And I circulated some articles on it in, uh, maybe it was the last class. I can't remember. But um, initially the, the term Gotra indicated like that all beings have a certain DNA, sort of genetic inheritance, inheritance. And some of them are eternally damned, so to speak. There's the cut-off and the doubtful. In early Mahayana tradition, they had this idea of five gotras, shravakas, pratyeka buddhas, bodhisattvas, and those who are uncertain which way they're going. And then those who are cut off, they have no chance of achieving buddhahood. And that was quickly squashed by the more ecumenical uh, mainstream of Mahayana say no 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 there's 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 only three gochas Shravaka Pratika Buddha and Bodhisattva and they're all uh, they all are uh, hermeneutical devices or soteriological devices and really ultimately there is one gocha and that is the one yana ekayana of uh, Buddha Buddhahood. Uh, but you see this these two terms being used here and uh, sort of interesting in the way that they are in brief. Let's see. Okay, so after the quote, though it is said that this mode of being is difficult to realize by Shravakas, Prateka, Buddhas, and even Bodhisattvas who have newly entered the Mahayana, for the time being it shall be taught by way of an example. When a big precious gem of blue barrel, so we saw this in Carl's introduction, this this analogy. 
is encrusted despite its being associated with encrustations. The encrustations do not mix with the gem inside. Likewise, at the time of sentient beings, the Buddha heart is obscured by stains, but not mixed with them. Therefore, it is pure and yet associated with afflictions, although this gem also... Though this gem may be encrusted from the very beginning, the encrustations neither arise from the gem, nor do they arise from something other than the gem. Thus, through purifying these encrustations that do not arise from anywhere, <laughs> not your ordinary encrustations, the gem becomes pure. Likewise, Buddhahood, which is nothing but the obscurations of mind, the Buddha heart having become pure is exactly like this. Again, there's no difference in the qualities of that gem at first and in the end. Nevertheless, these qualities did not shine forth earlier, but later when the gem has become free from stains, is tied onto the pinnacle of a victory banner and is supplicated, its qualities come forth. You know, so this is the fundamental quandary of uh, the Buddha's presentation is how is it that beings who are... Um, confused and ignorant and and uh, so forth how can they become enlightened what what is the do we create an enlightened mind or is it spontaneously present and, and if so how you have to wash those jewels likewise all Buddha qualities exist right now but if not triggered interesting description if not triggered by flawless, immaculate deeds, their power does not come forth. Therefore, these qualities are the inseparable true nature of the Buddha heart. This gem does not think, I am encrusted. I'm without encrustations. I grant qualities to those who supplicate me, only those who supplicate me, or I do not grant them to others. And it is spontaneous in granting these qualities to, i.e. to everyone. And it, it spontaneously manifests when the encrustations are, are gone. It doesn't like think about that and decide. Since enlightened activity operates just like that, the Buddha heart too is spontaneous and non-conceptual. This is how its mode of being is to be realized. Not understanding these reasons, other explain, others explain that the fruition exists already right now. So here we go. He's starting to complain about other people who have simplistic views about... Uh, Buddha nature. Um, others explain that the fruition exists already, that we have like a fully developed Buddha in every sentient being, that the afflictions are not to be relinquished, that you don't need to relinquish your afflictions to, be, um, to become enlightened, that new remedial wisdom cannot be produced. I say there's no uh, people who say there is no enlightenment. How can you become enlightened? You're screwed up. And then natural purity is the partial aspect of nothing but a non-applicative negation. He's talking about the wrong tongpas, the galukpas here. That uh, natural purity, enlightenment, Buddha, Buddhahood, is the partial. Not quite sure what he means by partial aspect, but uh, he says it's it's just a non-applicative negation. There's no, you can't talk about any positive aspects. Such explanations are a far cry from the, the true dharma, the Vajrayama. That's an interesting phrase, a far cry. Do you think he actually used that? <laughs> or is that Carl's translation? Therefore, one should know that this inconceivable matrix, you know, so sometimes we see the term Buddha heart, now we see matrix. Uh, you know, probably Buddha heart is Tathagata Garma. 
Buddha, heart, and, and matrix maybe is just uh, Garba. That's what I would put my money on if I had any. Um, the very essence of what dependently originates, originates, such as the ultimate and seeming realities, Buddhas and sentient beings, appearance and emptiness, is contained in the three phases of sentient beings, those on the path and Buddhas. Its essence is expressed as follows. Though beginningless, it entails an end. What is naturally pure and consists of permanent dharmas is not seen, since it is obscured by a beginningless cocoon, just as in the example of a golden statue being obscured. And we see that the source of this is the uh, Bodhisattva, this text called the Bodhisattva Pitaka, which uh, is, it was apparently an amazing text because it's quoted from all over the place in the literature, but does not exist as a, uh, a separate text at this time. Nobody's found any copies of it. Um, in detail, I've already explained this in my text, The Treatise Determining the Buddha Heart, which we'll get to. Now follows the detailed explanation of the treatise in 11 sections, general instruction on causes and conditions. So that was the general introduction. This has four parts explaining mind is the essence of purity and impurity, the manner of being mistaken, divisions of cause and conditions, and the divisions of the three phases. And the first one, the mind is the essence of purity, and impurity has two parts, its essence and its way of appearing. The essence on page 132, 1.1.1, in the way that Tibetans do uh, outlines, this bizarre way. The cause is beginningless mind as such, though it is neither confined nor biased. So this is the first two lines of a root stanza, which is normally four lines. And often we see this where a stanza is broken in half and has uh, commented on bit by bit. The cause is beginningless mind as such, cause of samsara, though it is neither confined nor biased. The general terminology of all you. Yana speaks of mind as such. Um, you know, sort of like just mind without really being uh, specific about what aspect of mind is being talked about. However, this mind as such should be understood as being twofold. There's pure, Im pure and impure. As for teaching, the pure aspect of mind as such as mind, and still calling it mind, Uttaratasha states, and we saw this in Carl's introduction. Earth rests upon water. And this is the Buddhist cosmological framework of the universe uh, in terms of the four elements. Earth rests on water, which is interesting. <laughs> Earth floats on water. Water rests on wind, and wind on space. You would think it'd be the other way around, right? You think there'd be the solid ground on the bottom and on top of that is water and then wind blows the water and then there's space above but everything's turned upside down in this tradition i guess where are the, maybe it's because where's the maybe it's because the turtles the turtles are in the water oh right 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 it, it's going from more coarse to more subtle very good but space does not rest on anything does not rest on the elements of earth, water, and air, and wind. Likewise, skandhas, datus, and faculties, so those are the latest evolution of, 
phenomena rest on karma and afflictions, which are identified as the two causes of suffering in the scheme of the Four Noble Truths. Karma and afflictions always rest on improper mental engagement, i.e. ignorance. Improper mental engagement rests on the purity of mind, but the nature of mind does not rest on any of those. This expresses the Buddha heart as mind, which means that it is the basis of everything in samsara and nirvana. Sarha's Doha Kosha Gita, the, the, the uh, Doha for the people, declares, you know, so Sarha's famous for having written three long songs do, called Doha's, one for the peeps, <laughs> the people, one for the king and one for the queen. <laughs> Dear king, uh, let's see, mind as such alone is the seed of everything from which samsaric existence and nirvana bloom. I pay homage to mind, which grants the fruition we wish for, just like a wish-fulfilling gem. Mind is everything. And the Asta-Sahasrika Prajnaparamita Sutra says, so the Asta-Sahasrika Prajnaparamita Sutra is one of the earliest Prajnaparamita Sutras to come out. It's the one in 8,000 lines. The mind is no mind. The nature of mind is luminosity. And we've seen this. I think most of us have seen this phrase before, where first you take the mind, my normal, ordinary, confused mind, is empty. It is not really a mind. You can't identify, find that mind. And yet the nature of mind is luminous. It's 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 uh, continuously, spontaneously present as as clear awareness. It's luminous, luminosity. Anyway, this this is also stated many times in the sutras and treatises, thus expressing that mind as such is endowed with purity. And we see also in the uh, the so-called early tradition of the Nikayas, the, the uh, what's collected in the Pali Canon that there's places where the Buddha talks about the naturally pure mind, the naturally luminous, pure mind, which is amazing that you find that in the earliest strata of uh, Buddhist literature attributed to the Buddha. So, you know, the so-called Theravadan uh, teachings of the Buddha. To express the impure aspect of mind as such as mind refers to what is taught as the Aliya consciousness. The Abhidharma Samuchaya, the uh, compendium of Abhidharma written by Asanga says, mind being impregnated by all the latent tendencies of skandhas, ayatanas, and datus is the alia consciousness with all seeds. So that aspect of mind that gets impregnated with latent tendencies and latent tendencies of what? Of everything. Everything that can be categorized as the five skandhas or as the ayatanas or as the datus. This is called the alia consciousness and the that impregnation is uh, referred to as there being seeds in the alia consciousness. This alia consciousness is embraced by false imagination. So that aspect of our mind that, that uh, looks at that activity and thinks it's real is the false imagination. 
it consists of the minds and mental factors in the three realms the 51 mental factors and the different types of minds is the root of all obscurations and is to be overcome by buddha wisdom with this in mind just a sort of pun i like that he uses that pun with this in mind in the Lankavatara, he says, the Lankavatara Sutra says, Sutra doesn't really say, but the Buddha in that Sutra says, O children of the victors, these three realms are merely mind. You know, saying that everything is mind. Uh, whatever we experience as the environment is the manifestation of the Aliyah Vishnana. Also, the Madhyanta Vibhaga written by Maitreya or attributed to Maitreya states, false imagination consists of the mind and mental factors in the three realms. Robert. So with that chart that Pete put together and these first few stanzas, what we're going through here basically is um, the mechanics of karma. Um, we're not really going through karma here. We're going through sort of like uh, the structure of the world, right? But I mean, like these things are implanted in our in our in our alaya consciousness, right? Uh, what what happens in that chart? Right. That, the, that chart is is a is a presentation of karma. Karma karmic activity occurs through those four conditions. That's right. And 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 this is saying that that chart is all mind. Yes. That chart is all mind. That chart is in your mind, and it's all mind. Uh, therefore, this alia shall be explained briefly. So here he says alia, but he means alia consciousness. Master Vasubandhu says the following about it in his text, the Trimshika, Karika, the 30 verses. Here, maturation is the alia consciousness. So maturation, that place where things mature, where like, you know, it's like uh, when you have uh, eggs, uh, chicken eggs, and you put them in the incubator, the incubation like machine with the lights on and the warmth and so forth, or you have your little seedlings and the light and the water. That's the alia consciousness, which contains all the seeds. Its appropriation state and cognizance are unconscious. The, the sort of activity of the Aliyah consciousness, even though it's called a consciousness, are unconscious. They're not active conscious. There's no active consciousness. Yet it is always endowed with contact, mental engagement, feeling, discrimination, and impulse. And uh, I'll let Rongjong Dorje explain this before, instead of going explaining it. Its feeling is indifference, it is obscured and neutral, the same goes for its contact, and so on. It flows like a river stream. In our hot hood, it becomes extinguished. Okay, so he explains this quote. As for what is called Aliyah, if the term consciousness is not explicitly stated, <coughs> explicitly stated, it's suitable in certain contexts to express suchness as Aliyah too which is confusing, but I think what somebody's trying to say here, either Rongjun Dorje or Carl, is that 
and that um, uh, sorry, he, he's Rangjin Dorje is saying that um, there there is an alia, there's an all basis that's not part of consciousness, which is sort of this radical thing that. Uh, he and others have done is saying sort of below or around the alia vijnana is the alia, the all basis, which is suchness. Therefore, the term consciousness is used here to distinguish it from the all basis, which is beyond consciousness, beyond diluted, divided mentality. In the, in the Nalanda Bodhi text, Carl calls it alaya wisdom. That's different. That's different from alaya. There's yeah, well, he, he said the alaya consciousness is where the samsaric seeds go, and the alaya wisdom is where, when you study dharma, where that goes. Right, and the alaya is in between. Yeah. So it's not the alaya wisdom. No, but, well, he calls that alaya wisdom, but not, not alaya basis. He, he says well, the good seeds go in alaya wisdom. Right in, right. in the Nalanda Bodhi in the Nalanda Bodhi text. Thank you. But what's odd here is that even though he makes this point about how Alia alone has a different meaning, he then proceeds to use it alone, even when he means the consciousness. Right. Um, Throughout a lot of the reading, I think that was true. Yeah, which which makes one think that maybe it's the the this statement by Rongjung Dorji is actually the other way around, where he's saying like. Even though I'm not going to say consciousness when I say alia all the time, please understand that it should be there. So it's it's a little confusing, but he does uh, call it suchness. So that's why I'm identifying it as alia. Right. No, I agree with you with this statement. It's just funny that I noticed this and then I noticed later it. on. Yeah. He kept going and using it, it the drops, other way. Yeah. So you have to pick up from from context which version of Alia we're talking about. And in, in this text, uh, he does not uh, talk explicitly about Alia Jnana, I believe. We'll see. You may wonder if consciousness expresses that which sees an object. So he's using the traditional definition of consciousness from the earlier traditions of the Sautrantika and Vaibhashika. Consciousness is that which grasps hold of an object. So uh, that's important to remember. Um, and that's why the Aliyah is unconscious. Well, that's a confusing statement, sorry. Uh, but um, when we discuss things in other places and other aspects of the Buddhist tradition or with other people, it's helpful to always remember in the Buddhist tradition, in the technical sense, consciousness is that which has an object. So when people say, how about consciousness without an object, that's a non sequitur in the Buddhist tradition. There's no such thing as consciousness without an object. Consciousness is always a subject-object experience. Anyway, if, you know, given this situation of the, the traditional 
definition of consciousness expresses that which sees an object. How is this alia presented as having an object? Because it's called a consciousness, alia consciousness. It is called consciousness because it represents the entity of mutual causes and conditions by virtue of the other seven collections of consciousness, serving as its objects in terms of maturing and being seeds. Now the first part of that sentence was confusing. It represents the entity of mutual cause. It, it seems to me it basically says it's called a consciousness because the other seven collections of consciousness serve as its objects in terms of being the maturing of its seeds. And uh, since everything is gathered within it, Alia consciousness, you know, so Alia consciousness has this sort of twofold nature of being, on the one hand, the basis of all the other consciousnesses, and you can then talk about the other consciousnesses being separate types of mind, so to speak, divisions of mind. And on the other hand, the Alia consciousness includes all of them. So it's spoken of in those two ways in different places and can be confusing in that way. Since everything is gathered within it, the Alia consciousness, it represents maturation. So it also has the maturation of those seeds, and the maturation of the seeds is as the other seven consciousnesses, as well as the rest of the skandhas, and the rest of the datus and ayatanas, meaning so-called outer phenomena of form and so forth of the different types of form. Since, uh, let's see, it, uh, since everything is gathered within it, it represents maturation, just as the, as the ocean exists due to rainwater. From the point of view of it serving as the cause that produces all manifest conditions, it is what consists of all the seeds. So it has these different aspects. It's the, it's the cause of everything else, as well as the result but it has these aspects. Uh, it is what consists of all seeds, because the Alia consciousness is accompanied by the group of the five omnipresent mental factors. So that's a reference to the, to the first section of the 51 mental factors, which are called omnipresent mental factors because they occur in every moment of consciousness. And things get sort of dicey because the next section of um, of the 51 mental factors is called the five um, object-determining mental factors. And the significance is that the first five are not, do not specifically imply that there is an object, which goes right against the whole idea of consciousness being that which has, an, that which takes an object just to confuse things further. But given that we have that sort of matrix of confusion, it can only get better from here. Um, because the Ali consciousness is accompanied by the group of the five omnipresent mental factors, which are contact, mental engagement, feeling, discrimination, which are the are skandhas two and three, by the way, and impulse at all times, these mental factors also represent features of its being considered as a consciousness. The feeling that accompanies the alia, so in the list that he just did, there was the 
the uh, aspect or mental factor of feeling. And in this case, uh, the feeling is indifference. The options are uh, positive, negative, indifference, and the Ali is always indifferent. And it is unobscured and neutral. So unobscured does not mean like enlightened. It just means it's it perceives it's it's sort of confusing what what it means here unobscured. Maybe he'll explain that, so I won't. It's neutral karmically. It it has no uh, new no karmic uh, flavor of its own. It's either good or bad. Does it mean it's unobscured because the physical senses that are bringing in the sense objects are just doing it accurately? Well, they don't always do it accurately. Right, but it's sort of assuming, or at least, you know, <laughs> it's, it, it's saying it, it, you're getting what you get. <laughs> in that way, yes. It's unobscured because it perceives whatever it perceives without obstruction, <laughs> without obscuration. <laughs> See, he goes on to say the clarity of a mirror. Maybe that's the, the Unobstruct, idea. Unobscured. That's right. It just reflects whatever comes in front of it. Yeah. Um, you know, so if the senses are imperfect, then it reflects that. And uh, and neutral resembling the clarity of a, of a mirror that just reflects indifferently whatever comes in front of it doesn't have any judgment doesn't you know say I'm not going to reflect that because it's bad or whatever that is the it, that it is a that it, it is flowing like a river stream refers to the uninterrupted flux of all the seeds of objects subjects and sense faculties in the above quote when Vasubandhu says in Arant our hot hood, it becomes extinguished. What he has in mind is Buddhahood. In Shravaka Arhats, the Alia definitely still exists. So he's using the term Arhathood uh, sort of uh, loosely. And Rangjan Dorje is clarifying that Shravaka still have an um, Alia Vijnana, as do Pratyeka Buddhas. Um, the Alia definitely still exists. However, it is fine to explain that the extinction of the support that is the afflicted mind which clings to a personal self represents the extinction of one part of the Alia consciousness and uh, the main part. And he's talking about when he says the it's fine to explain that the extinction of the support that is the afflicted mind, and that's the definition from his point of view of the enlightenment of Ashravaka. They experience the extinguish the extinction of the support that is the afflicted mind which clings to a personal self. And so that's part of the Alia consciousness. A very detailed explanation of this Alia, and as Cynthia said, consciousness is given in the Mahayana Samgraha, which is uh, the compendium of the Mahayana by Asanga. And Carl has translated it and many commentaries in three volumes. It came out fairly recently in the scheme of things. And he's also teaching a year-long course on that that you can find online if you're interested. The Bhagava taught a verse in the Abhidharma Sutra, another text that does not exist in entirety, but only in many quotes from texts like the Mahayana Samgraha. 
but it's apparently a Mahayana version of Abhidharma. The Alia is the consciousness with all the seeds of all phenomena. Therefore, I explain the Alia consciousness to the excellent ones, meaning the, the Bodhisattvas. This is the scriptural support. You've got to have scriptural support, by the way. Don't leave, don't leave the house without it. Why is it called Alia Consciousness? All afflicted phenomena that entail arising adhere to it as its resultant entities, or it adheres to them as their causal entity. Cause and, re and result relationship between the Alia Vijnana and all afflicted phenomena. Therefore, it is the Alia Consciousness, or it is the Alia Consciousness since sentient beings adhere to it as being their identity. It is where our sense of identity resides. Or it's a term for what we experience as the sense of identity. It is also called the appropriating consciousness. The scriptural support for this corresponds to what the Samdhi Nirmochana Sutra says, the famous sutra of the uh, unraveling or revealing of the intent, meaning the intent, the uh, inner intent of the Tathagata's teachings. And this sutra is what presents the scheme of the three turnings of the wheel of the Dharma as opposed to the prior scheme of only two turnings and presents the third turning as that which reveals the true intent of the Buddha's teachings and, and places itself higher than the second turning which presents a non-implicative negation as the ultimate. And this turning presents the Buddha heart as the ultimate. And it says the appropriating consciousness is profound and subtle similar to the Buddha nature, is profound and subtle. All its seeds flow like the stream of a river. Just like, uh, you know, the stream of a river, it's like the river is that, that thing that looks like it's one thing, but it's just made up of zillions of drops of water that somehow come together and hang out together and just like uh, pass by uh, very quickly and endlessly. And there's, it's like endless, beginningless and endless. It is inappropriate to conceive of it as a self. I did not teach that. It, sorry, I did not teach it to childish beings. So he's saying, I didn't teach the Buddha nature, or the, or, sorry, the Alia Vijnana to the early, in the earlier teachings to the Shravakas, the childish beings, because they were going to misunderstand it and think I was talking about a personal self. So I didn't teach it to those childish beings. Why is it called appropriating consciousness? Because it is the cause of all physical sense faculties and serves as the locus of appropriating all kinds of bodies. Now, we're not talking about the Alia Vijnana appropriating other people's bodies. We're talking about the Alia consciousness going from lifetime to lifetime, appropriating one body at a time. In other words, our body is appropriated by the Alia Vijnana in each lifetime. And um, it is the cause of all the sense faculties. It is the ground from which the sense faculties manifest. Thus it seizes the five sense faculties without them perishing. And you see this weird, this odd phenomena of 
the relationship between the Ali and the sense faculties and later the ayatanas and dhatus being described a little bit like the, the, the sense faculties um, and the rest of the ayatanas and dhatus being like external entities, but they're not <laughs> being viewed that way. Um, it seizes these five sense faculties without them perishing for as long as one's life lasts. And it also seizes their full manifestation when the link with a new body is established. Therefore, it is that which seizes the body that's being called appropriating consciousness. And it sounds like um, those sense consciousnesses or body exists separate from the Aliyah Vijnana, and the Aliyah Vijnana like attaches onto it, appropriates it, and makes it, you know, says, oh, this is mine, but it was like really separate, and that's not what's being described here. Um, it, it's somehow, it's not described that clearly, it seems. How are its characteristics presented? In brief, there are three. The intrinsic characteristic of the Aliyah consciousness is that it, by virtue of the latent tendencies of all afflicted phenomena, has the feature of holding their seeds, thus being the cause for their arising. So it's the, uh, the storehouse. Its characteristic of being a cause is that the Aliyah consciousness, which constitutes all seeds, abides as the cause for those afflict these afflicted phenomena at all times. So it matures the seeds as the second function. To present it as a result means that the Ali consciousness arises by virtue of the beginningless latent tendencies of this these afflicted phenomena. So it's also the result of all the afflicted of the maturation of all the afflicted seeds, then produce the next sort of moment of Ali Vishnana with uh, the results of those afflicted phenomena produce more seeds. So it's a sort of ground path in fruition of samsara. The Mahayana Samgraha continues that these latent tendencies arise and cease simultaneously with pure and impure phenomena. However, it is the mind, and uh, Carl puts in the Alia consciousness, that arises as the continuum of these tendencies. Um, because there are no external phenomena and the causes for the afflicted phenomena arising from that is the Aliya consciousness. Likewise, these afflicted phenomena in turn are presented as serving as the causal condition for the Aliya consciousness. So uh, the Aliya consciousness has this odd um, quality of being its own cause and its own result. very much like this internal incestuous world <laughs> just like producing itself over and over again which is what samsara does um, since no other causal condition is observable variegated latent tendencies dwell in the alia consciousness in a way of not being observable as variegated they don't seem to be different they all look the same when they're seeds or, or latent tendencies, but appear as different phenomena later once they arise as distinct karmic results. Just as a piece of cotton conditioned by kernel extracts is dyed, and this will appear to be variegated. And the note says something about how certain dyes, um, when applied to certain materials, 
uh, change that material from one uniform color to different colors based on different aspects of that material. This is the highly profound dependent origination of differentiating the nature. And apparently there's this scheme of different types of dependent origination that's being referred to here, which I'm not going to dive into. The other seven operating consciousnesses and the Alia consciousnesses are to be regarded as bearing the characteristic of being mutual causes and conditions. So the Alia is, the, Alia is known as the cause of the other seven, and the other seven are the cause of the Alivishnana, or cause and conditions. As the Manyanta Vibhaga by Maitreya says, a single one in the is the conditioning consciousness, Alia. The remaining entail experience. So uh, when the, the seeds ripen into the other seven consciousness, then there's what we call experience. Experience here is an alternative translation for feeling, and I'm not this kind of feeling. I'm not sure why they use the, why Carl's using the term experience, but I can only think that there must be a different term in the original language than the term that's normally translated as feeling. But experience, the limitation, and setting in motion are the mental factors. <clears throat> Delimitation is uh, discrimination. The third skanda. For this reason, the Alia is said to be the special matrix of sentient beings. We all have our special matrix. But it is stated that it is not the cause for the wisdom of great nirvana. This is not where nirvana comes from, the Alia Vijnana. Nevertheless, some may wonder, as for saying that the Alia is the cause of everything, meaning Alia Vishnana, but not the cause of purified phenomena, how is this to be understood since there are also instances when it is taught as being the cause of purified phenomena? You know, so um, we, we, do, uh, neg we incur negative activity or partake in negative activity of body, speech, and mind, and we partake in, in uh, positive activity of body, speech, and mind, some of which ultimately leads to Buddhahood. And those are called pure, uh, purified phenomena. And so those both arise from and uh, remain within the Aliyah Vijnana. So how is that to be understood? It is fine to use the conventional term purified phenomena. So uh, we're not, he's, he's saying that uh, it's, they're not really purified ph uh, phenomena, technically. Um, by virtue of the Ali consciousness having become pure at the stage of Buddhahood, but which is not really technically true either, the Ali consciousness disappears. That's what purification of it means in this case. But it is not suitable to explain the Alia consciousness as being the cause for the Buddha wisdom of Nirvana. But isn't it, you know, so he's like imagining uh, that he's talking with somebody who's confused or objecting and posing these questions to himself that he'll answer. But isn't it the case that also the conceptuality that is based on the correct view of the immaculate dharmas being inseparable from Buddha in line is input into the Ali consciousness, you know, isn't that where all of us are who are like, you know, contemplating this idea of the of the inconceivable quality of the Buddha nature and so forth and cultivating 
meditation and hearing, contemplating meditation. Uh, isn't this going on within our only consciousness? Otherwise, how are these purified phenomena produced? Where do they come from? They are grounded in the above-mentioned dharmakaya, that is the purity of mind. So it appears like there's a whole other like world, dharmakaya, that is the purity of mind, the tathagata heart. And he's going to quote from the Uttara Tantra by Maitreya to support his view. Like a treasure and a fruit tree. So uh, these two become the analogies that he's going to use for this explanation of purified phenomena. A treasure and a fruit tree. The disposition, the gotra, is known to is is to be known as twofold, naturally abiding without beginning, and the supreme of what is accomplished. So there's the ongoing pre-existing gotra of all sentient beings as being sentient beings, and then there's the gotra of when they achieve accomplishment as Buddhahood. It is held that the three Buddhakayas, Dharma, Sambo, and Nirmana Kaya are attained by virtue of these two dispositions. The first Kaya through the treasure, I'm sorry, through the natural abiding without beginning disposition creates the Dharma Kaya, and the other two, the form Kayas, is from the supreme of what is accomplished. So the Dharma Kaya doesn't change. It's it's naturally abiding without beginning in all sentient beings, the Dharma Kaya, but it's the Rupa Kaya that uh, appears when the obscurations are purified. It, it is the implication. This is explained. Sorry? That's change of state then? This is called change of state, yes. Um, how could the maturational consciousness with all the seeds, again referring to the Ali Vishnana, but in its aspect of being the consciousness where maturation takes place, which is the cause of afflicted phenomena, be the seed of its own remedy, that is, supermundane mind. Since supermundane mind is not contained in the mind of ordinary beings, the latent tendencies of this supermundane mind do not exist in them. So it's like in a single sentient being, in the continuum of single sentient being, we have two beings. We have the the Alevijnana being, and then we have this, this other uh, supermundane mind being. They don't really talk to each other much. They don't really relate to each other much. But if these latent tendencies do not exist in them, it must be stated from which seeds they arise. Supermundane mind originates from the natural outflow of the pure Dharmadhatu. You know, so we're back to the basic question that we started from, which is how does enlightenment occur in confused sentient beings? Is it something newly created? Is it something that's there from the beginning in full form? And so here's his explanation. Supermundane mind originates from the natural outflow of the pure Dharma, Dharma Dhatu. So we all are, uh, there's a part of us that's the natural outflow of the Dharma Dhatu. That is the seeds which are the latent tendencies for listening. And this is a reference to the three stages of prajna, listening, hearing, and contemplating. Or it's a reference to the shravakas. Um, you may wonder, what are these latent tendencies for listening anyway? 
you know, so he's picking the purified phenomena, listening as a positive, or purifying phenomena, listening to the Dharma ends up in Buddhahood someday, supposedly. Are they of the nature of the Ali consciousness, or are they not? If they were of the nature of the Ali consciousness, how could they be suitable as the seeds of its remedy? You know, it's like, so how, do, how do we destroy samsara with samsaric mind? Can you actually undermine samsara with samsaric mind? Don't you need the mind of nirvana to undermine samsara? So you may wonder, what are these latent tendencies for listening? Are they of the nature of the Ali consciousness or not? If they were of the nature of the Ali consciousness, how could they be suitable as the seeds of its remedy? And if they are not of its nature, then look what the matrix of these seeds of latent tendencies for listening is. Okay, let's look what these latent tendencies for listening and dependence on the enlightenment of a Buddha are, which matrix they enter and that they enter the maturational consciousness in the manner of coexisting with it. All this is like a mixture of milk and water. What a fascinating description. <laughs> They're like sort of separate, but then they infiltrate into the Ali of Vishnana, like milk and water. And the, the use of the analogy of milk and water is that milk and water never really mix. They just sort of swirl around but retain their own you know, the water turns milky, but there's... Anyway, they are not the Alia consciousness because they are the very seeds of its remedy. Okay. Small latent tendencies turn into medium latent tendencies, and before you know it, you got some real problems. And these medium latent tendencies then turn into great latent tendencies, all this by virtue of being associated with listening, reflection, and meditation that are performed many times. Here we're talking about positive tendencies. The small, medium, and great latent tendencies for listening are to be regarded as the seeds of the Dharmakaya. It's funny that listening is picked up on. It's like, you know, sort of the basic uh, function that human beings can do is like to listen to other, to listen, <laughs> to pay attention to their world or whatever, other people. Uh, since they are the, they are the remedy for the Alia consciousness, they are not of the nature of the Alia consciousness, but since they are the natural outflow of the super-mundane, sorry, I skipped a part, they are not of the nature of the Alia consciousness. In the sense of being a remedy, they are something mundane, because remedies are mundane, they're not ultimate. <laughs> Um, but since they are the natural outflow of the super-mundane, the utterly pure dharmanatu, they are the seeds of super-mundane minds. Something mundane can be the seed of the super-mundane. Although this super-mundane mind has not originated yet, yet, oh, sorry, yet, they are the remedy for being entangled in samsara through the afflictions, the remedy for migrating in the lower realms, and the remedy that makes all wrongdoing vanish. Although the super-mundane mind has not originated yet, they are the remedy for being entangled in samsara through the afflictions and so forth. So one question is, when you were asking, talking about the question of something as ordinary as listening, I was wondering, do they actually mean in this case listening specifically in the context of Dharma? 
I believe so. I believe so. So it's not ordinary listening. It's the special listening of the three prajnas. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. I think it's a footnote that explains it. Yeah. They are what is in complete concordance with meeting Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. So they lead to meeting Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. So listen well. Though beginner bodhisattvas are mundane, the, these latent tendencies should be regarded as being included in the Dharmakaya and those of Shravakas and Pratyeka Buddhas as being included in the Vimuktikaya. That's a really cool, sort of amazing scheme that he just presented where it's like only bodhisattvas uh, connect to the Dharmakaya because bodhisattvas become Buddhas. But Shravakas and Pradyeka Buddhas, they do achieve liberation, which is what Vimuktikaya means. It's the body of liberation. So, you know, on the one hand, earlier he's, he was saying there's really no difference between Shravakas, Pradyeka Buddhas, and Bodhisattvas. They all become Buddhas, and yet here he sort of places them in a different scheme. Anyway. Oh, let's see. These latent tendencies should be regarded as included in the Dharmakaya and Vimuktikaya. Vimuktikaya. They are not the Alia consciousness, but included in the Dharmakaya and Vimuktikaya, respectively, to the extent that they gradually shine forth in a small, medium, and great way. In that same extent, the consciousness of complete maturation wanes and changes state too. So the Alia Vijnana wanes and changes state. This is the change of state that Robert was referring to. If it has changed state in all aspects, the consciousness becomes devoid of seeds and is also relinquished in all aspects. And this is the emptying out and then the dissolving of the Alia consciousness upon complete enlightenment. Some may think that the unfolding disposition arises newly. Now here is using the term disposition or gotra instead of Garba. But this is not the case. To present the naturally abiding disposition, a different sort of way of referring to the disposition, the Dharmadhatu has the eight consciousnesses. The Dharmadhatu has the eight consciousnesses, such as the Alaya consciousness, is a presentation, a classification in terms of false imagination. False imagination imagines the Dharmadhatu which he's gloss he's glossing the naturally abiding disposition as the Dharmadhatu is falsely imagined to be the eight consciousnesses. Likewise the unfolding disposition, and Carl added that presumably because he knows that Rongjung Dorje has used this term elsewhere. Likewise the unfolding disposition, the very own stainless essence of these eight collections of consciousness, exists as the nature of the four wisdoms. So they really are the four wisdoms of Buddhahood, which is the presentation in terms of correct imagination by virtue of previous states having been overcome through the immaculate dharmas that are grounded in Buddha enlightenment. The mistakenness of the eight collections does not exist anymore. Therefore, this is expressed using the phrase, the wisdom of the fundamental change of state. For this reason, the Madhyanta Vibhaga says purity is asserted to be like the purity of the element of water, gold, and space, which I believe he's using the analogies of things that can appear to be uh, defiled but are not really. 
they just uh, carry defilements with them at times. Accordingly, mind without stains should be regarded as wisdom, and mind with stains as consciousness. That's the simplest and best <laughs> explanation so far. <laughs> Probably the most helpful. <laughs> you know, they say this, this, all this stuff is supposed to be like the practitioner tradition, right? <laughs> I don't know, has this been helpful for your practice so far? <laughs> Um, well, sometimes it just seems like a lot of ink. <laughs> they didn't use ink. They they used <laughs> no. You're right. They did use ink. They carved it in wood and then they uh, printed it. It does uh, the Manjushri Nama Samgiti, which is a famous tantra, the first in the collection, states beyond the nature of consciousness, wisdom bears a non-dual nature. In detail, I explain this in my uh, treatise of examining consciousness and wisdom, which we'll get to someday, and will also instruct more in it below in the chapter that teaches the connection of consciousness and wisdom in the four states. I think that's chapter six or nine. Having explained pure and impure mind in this way, uh, as above, the meaning of beginningless is as follows. <laughs> Since a beginning and an end in time are, are conceptual superimpositions here, mind's own essence, be it with stains or stainless, is free from being the same as or other than dependent origination. Since there is no other beginning than that, this is called beginningless time. Dependent origination is uh, famous for being like uh, an endless cycle of... Uh, you know, going from 1 to 12 in the Nidanas and then 12 to 1. And then on again. On the, in the very instant of mind itself being aware of or realizing its own essence, it is liberated. Whereas it's not being aware of this essence is the beginning of mistaken mind. Implying that there was a beginning. But which is called ignorance. Therefore, the Abhidharma Sutra says, the Datu, a beginningless time, the realm of beginningless time, is the matrix of all phenomena. What a, like, a weird statement, sort of contradictory scheme. A Datu, a place of beginningless time. Time has a place, Datu, and it's the matrix of all phenomena. Since it exists... All beings and also nirvana are obtained. I thought it didn't exist, but anyway. Also, the Sandhya Motion of Sutra states the defining characteristic of the realm of formations and the ultimate is the defining characteristic that they are free from being one or different. This is the famous way of presenting the two levels of reality or the two truths, the relative and the ultimate. They're not the same and nor are they different. And that Nagarjuna was the first to present that, and everybody else continues that. That because if you say that they're uh, simply, if you say that they're either different or the same, then they're entities, and they're not both entities. Moreover, there have been infinite moments and in pastimes apart from just this present moment of not realizing mind's nature, which are connected as a continuum all the way up to right now. Therefore, to express this infinite continuum of ignorance through the term beginningless is fine. <laughs> uh, 
also it's fine. However, thoughts about mind withstands existing as something permanent from the beginning, or about its arising out of nothing, or nothing but instances of the views about a true personality. So there is no real beginning, or um, arising out of nothing, or just as something that has been there, always been there. There is no thing that's ever been anywhere. Yeah. Yes. Isn't there also the idea that there is no continuum? That that's an That's what he's getting at. That's what he's getting at, yeah. Are nothing but instances of the views of a true personality, i.e. continuum, of thinking that there is a continuum, that's the personality. If mine were permanently connected with its stains, they would simply be impossible to relinquish. Relinquish. Rising out of nothing means that mine would arise without a cause. Since thinking in this way, in such ways, entails these flaws, it also contradicts reasoning. Nagarjuna says in his text called Yukti Shastiki, Shastika, sorry, which is the 60 verses, very, very catchy name, 60 verses. How could what is dependent origination have a beginning or an end? How could what has arisen earlier come to an end later on? Free from the extremes of earlier and later, the world appears like an illusion. <laughs> Similar to, isn't there a famous quote by Longchenpa? Since there is nothing that has ever come to be, this is a great cause for making jokes about the nature of reality or something, something like that. Um, he says, how could what has arisen earlier come to an end later on? If something has actually arisen, it can't end. That's a technical point in this system where where they say if something really arises, then it's there. Can't get rid of it. In all Buddhas and sentient beings, this mind cannot be expressed as being either the same or different between Buddhas and sentient beings. Therefore, it is not confined. It's not delimited. Since it does not fall into any bias such as permanent or extinction, it's not biased. This teaches the very nature of mind. Oh, that was clear, huh? <laughs> mind's way of appearing. So first we had the essence of mind, now we have mind's way of appearing. Due to the unimpeded play of that very mind, empty in essence, lucid in nature, and unimpeded in manifestation, it appears as everything. And this is the famous way that uh, reality and in this case, since reality is mind, uh, in this case, the way that mind is presented in the Vajrayana tradition is that um, the essence is emptiness. The essence of reality or mind is empty. Its nature, its uh, quality, its characteristic is luminous or lucid. Lucid is better than luminous. Luminous makes us think that it's bright like a light. Lucid means that it 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 knows the nose knows uh, and it's unimpeded in manifestation it just it manifests ceaselessly it just goes on and on and on you can't stop things from from appearing and therefore it appears as everything that appears sort of tautology, but due to the unimpeded play of that very mind's own essence through momentary consciousnesses, while its nature abides as emptiness and its lucidity by nature, 
which represents the basis for everything. Sorry. And it is lucidity by nature, which represents the basis for everything. The individual manifestations of the collections of mental factors and the seven collections of consciousness appear in an unimpeded and momentary way from that empty and lucid ground. <coughs> so the two aspects of uh, empty and lucid are, are aspects of the ground. Therefore, during the phase of mind being impure, before uh, any purification is taking place, these three aspects of mind's empty essence, lucid nature, and unabated display are called mind. Meditation and consciousness, respectively. So mind's empty essence is called mind. Its lucid nature is called mentation. Mentation is the activity of the mind. It's it's illuminating or knowing quality, and its display is consciousness. All the different types of consciousness. Once they've become pure, they are expressed through the names of the three kayas and the wisdom. So, mind becomes dharmakaya, mentation or lucid nature becomes sambhogakaya, and consciousness or unimpeded display becomes nirmanakaya. This is also stated by Nomal Nagarjuna in his uh, praise of Dharmadhatu. Covered by the web of the two of the afflictions, it is called ascension being. Once it's free from the afflictions, it should be expressed as Buddha. Explaining the matter of being mistaken. How is it we're mistaken? This has two parts, and we'll start with the first one, the instruction on the Ali and the afflicted mind that rests on it. That very mind being ignorant of itself is stirred by formational mentation due to being stirred like waves on water. So here's his explanation of how ignorance arises, how confusion, samsara arises. Let's see if he really gives us full explanation of the creation of samsara, the creation story. As for that very mind being ignorant of itself, of what is it ignorant? Through what is it ignorant? And in which way is it ignorant? First, it is ignorant of its own naturally pure essence of being empty and lucid. Through what is it ignorant? It is ignorant of its own essence through its own unimpeded creative display appearing as if it were distinct ob subjects and objects. So um, it mistakes the lucid lucid quality as being subjects and objects. In what way is it ignorant? Due to being stirred by formational mentation. Now where did that come from? Where did the formational mentation come from? I thought we just had mind. It appears as if it were causes and conditions based on which it is rendered afflicted. Therefore ignorance is produced and through false imagination it serves as both the basis the only consciousness and the condition, mentation of samsara. Where did the false imagination come from? Is that separate from the mind? I'm just playing devil's advocate here, you know, which I suggest you also do and not just, you know, take this as sort of gospel, which I think is the whole point is it's meant to get us to think about like, what is our mind? What is our experience of the world? What is confusion? What is the root of our confusion? Therefore, ignorance, uh, sorry. Since this mentation 
and the Alia consciousness manifests in the form of mutual causes and conditions, just like water and waves, they are incessantly stirring and forming each other. Hence, this is called ignorance. It's being explained as meditation, as also discussed in Vasubandhu's 30 verses. That which, oh, sorry, what operates by resting on the Alia consciousness is the consciousness called mentation, which has as its focal object its nature being sense, self centeredness, which has it, sorry. So mentation has the Alia consciousness as its focal object. It's looking at the Alia consciousness. And its nature is being self-centeredness. It is always associated with the four afflictions, which uh, we've seen in various places. There are basically different aspects of the belief in a self. And is obscured, yet neutral. So here he's calling it obscured. Um, the mentation, I think, is obscured. Ah, okay. I think what operates, uh, he's talking about the second uh, evolution of consciousness from the Alia to the next level of mentation is a, is obscured yet neutral. Neutral. Okay. Yeah, the neutral part is interesting. As for this mentation that rests on the Alia consciousness, it operates by resting on the Alia consciousness. <laughs> So we're talking about the seventh here, by the way. And when the other six, since mentation is the seventh, when the other six collections of consciousness arise and cease, it inputs their potentials into the alia. So it's the little, it's the data entry clerk, you know, that like collects all the stuff that happens in the other six and enters it back into the alia. Because it's fixated on the alia. It's like totally fixated on the alia. Therefore, it is called mental consciousness, which is really what the sixth consciousness is called. So he's just trying to confuse us. Don't let him confuse you. In his Pramana Vinishjaya, which is like something like uh, the identification of valid cognition, famous text by Dharmakirti, uh, he states that the own essence the own essence, the uh, own essence of this consciousness is valid cognition, which is odd because Rongjung Dorje or somebody else, Vasubandhu, just said it's obscured. Gotta like pay attention to these apparent contradictions and see how they're resolved. This is what should keep you up at night, right? Keep you awake. More likely the opposite. The mentation that is produced by its immediate condition, which I think is shorthand for immediately preceding condition, the sense consciousnesses in this case, it just talks about that, that cooperates with the immediately following object of its own specific object. <laughs> what an odd sentence that is. Uh, the mentation that is produced by its immediate condition i.e. the sense consciousnesses, sense, sorry, the sense consciousness that cooperates with the immediately following object of its own specific object is valid perception. 
that was the most confusing statement yet. I think I think he wins. Dharma Kirti wins the confusion award, the obfuscation award. Secondly, the mentation that has it as its focal object, it being the Ali Vijnana, has the character of regarding the Alia Vijnana as me, and is called afflicted mind. Since um, since this aspect of mentation conceives the Alia Vijnana as a self, and is always tainted by a scent of the four afflictions, it is the locus of the afflictedness of consciousness. The seventh consciousness is the afflicted consciousness. Therefore, it lacks any valid cognition and gives rise to all minds that are non-valid cognition. So here we see it being talked as non-valid cognition. So why did Dharmakirti state that its own essence is valid cognition? I think what he's trying to do is make the distinction between the afflicted mind as being invalid cognition, but the regular, you know, like sense perception cognition is valid. So I think he's kind of looking at the two different aspects of mentation separately and saying one can be valid and one cannot. Exactly. He's he's basically building a case for there being two aspects of the seventh consciousness. That's, that's which is immediate right? Yeah, which is really interesting development in the whole trajectory of the Yogacara world, is, is this distinction of uh, the seventh as having these two aspects. Um, this mentation in general has both aspects. The one, the immediate mind, is said to be consciousness, his own essence, and the other, the afflicted mind, is described from the perspective that based on it, mistakenness is caused. So the seventh consciousness has both a valid cognition part called the immediate mind and, a, and an invalid cognition part, which is the afflicted mind, the klesha consciousness. And uh, this is a, like an amazing development because... Because uh, normally when we describe the six consciousnesses or the eighth consciousnesses, it's not really clear like where the moment-to-moment attention is. And attention is actually a mental factor. And it's like, you know, we, we have this uh, point, point, one point at a time like experience of our world. You know, we think of one thing and then the next thing. And, you know, it seems like we think of a lot of things at once, but really it's one thing at a time very quickly. And like, where is that in the scheme of the six or eight consciousnesses? And here they finally sort of clarify, well, that's this thing called the immediate mind. So they give it a name and that like resolves the whole thing, makes you feel a lot better. So, um, Thus they are said to be like a rope and taking that rope to be a snake, respectively. So the immediate mind is a rope and then thinking that the rope is a snake is uh, afflicted. Here, others explain the immediate mind is part of the sixth. So some people put it there. The mental consciousness and some explain that ultimately it does not exist. However, those people, by clinging to the presentation of the shravakas, what a good way to diss somebody. It's like, oh, you are like a shravaka who assert that there are only six collections of consciousness. Do not understand the mind as presentation of the eight, which is given in detail in the Mahayana Samgraha in case we needed some more detail. 
Among these, those, rather, meditation is twofold, since it is the support that acts as the immediate condition. The mentation, which is any consciousness that has just ceased, as the support for the arising of consciousness. A confusing statement, but something about like it being the moment-to-moment attention. The second is the afflicted mind, which is always congruently associated with the floor of afflictions of the views about a real personality. One, self-conceit. Two, attachment to self. Three, and ignorance. Four, this is the support for the afflictedness of consciousness. Thus, consciousness is produced by virtue of the first aspect of mentation as its support, while the second one makes it afflicted. You know, so how do we how do we come about to and have pure conscious, a pure a pure mind? How do we purify our mind? Is we identify the immediate mind and separate it from the afflicted, which is just like an artificial uh, scheme of labeling, you know. But it's like just sort of saying, okay, there is a potential for pure mind in your moment to moment awareness, and it's like a very complicated, convoluted way of of uh, giving you that skillful means for people that need very convoluted explanations. Well, it's a little bit like Rob was saying last week about, you know, slicing it up, you know, slicing up the uh, space into many, many different little categories. But yes, it's it for some. Uh, mentation is a consciousness because it, rec- it cognizes objects since it is both immediately preceding and self-centered, immediate and afflicted. Mentation has these two aspects. Afflicted is a possessive term for this reason. This afflic- afflicted mind is the root of all mistakenness of circling in the three realms. Therefore, it neither exists in the meditative absorption of cessation that transcends the three realms nor in the meditative equipoises of the paths of arhats and super-mundane bodhisattvas. So there's a a meditation called cessation meditation, which is when those who have achieved nirvana dwell in meditation. If you've achieved like enlightenment in this lifetime, when you go into meditation, you experience cessation meditation. And there's a Shravaka version and a bodhisattva version of that. However, in the meditative absorption without discrimination, so this is referring to the fourth of the four formless trances, which is usually called without perception um, or non-perception. However, in the meditative absorption without discrimination, which is the cause for being born as a long-living God without discrimination, i.e. In the, in the fourth level of the form realms, of the God realms, the afflicted mind still exists because they're in, the, they're in samsara. Thus one will understand the difference between these meditative absorptions, that one is without afflicted mind and the other one isn't. Furthermore, if one takes the immediacy of the arising and ceasing of the consciousnesses that dwells, um, the arising and ceasing, of the consciousnesses that dwells in the Allah to be part of the sixth, the mental consciousness, then at the time of being able to dwell in meditative absorption of cessation, 
since there would be no seventh consciousness separate from the Ali and the six other conscious collections of consciousness, there would be only seven collections altogether at that time. <laughs> you didn't get your money's worth. Be only seven. Uh, for the immediate mind is claimed to be included in the sixth consciousness by those who do that, and the afflicted mind does not exist in that meditative absorption. These fine points are sort of irrelevant, it seems. On the other hand, if some people come to think, thus come to think that the stainless meditation taught by the Bhagavad, another epithet of the Buddha, must be presented as a ninth collection of consciousness, this is not justified either. Interesting statement, eliminating a ninth consciousness. You may wonder then, due to what is the seventh consciousness mentation, which is also explained as the immediate mind, presented as the afflicted mind, and due to what is it presented as stainless? In what way does it become the source of stainless mind? It is good to say that it becomes afflicted because once it is embraced by the four afflictions mentioned above, but to express it as stainless mentation, once it is embraced by the immaculate dharmas that are grounded in the enlightenment of a Buddha, so that's a good way to describe it. So when that moment-to-moment -moment attention is embraced by the the immaculate dharmas of the bodhisattva path, then we call it stainless mentation. When our mind is pervaded by compassion and wisdom. It is said that as long as these two have not undergone the change of state of having become completely pure, they will remain blended together. So until you attain enlightenment, you're going to experience alternation between the afflicted and the uh, stainless mind while on the path. And the Mahayana Samgraha discussed this in detail, but it's the evidence for the existence of this afflicted mind. If it did not exist, there would be the flaw of the non-existence of isolated ignorance really keep you up at night. Also, there would be the flaw of the mental consciousness being dissimilar to the five sense consciousnesses. For just as the dominant condition of the eyes and so on are the respective simultaneous supports for the collections of these five consciousnesses, dominant condition being the sense faculty, mentation is the dominant condition that supports the sixth consciousness. So the seventh consciousness is the, the sense base for uh, the sixth consciousness. There would, there would furthermore be the flaws of the lack of a hermeneutical, wow, etymology fermentation. That would be really upsetting. And of there being no difference between the meditative absorption without discrimination and the meditative absorption of cessation. Another major setback. Uh, in fact, the meditative absorption without discrimination is characterized by the presence of the afflicted mind while the meditative absorption of cessation is not. Otherwise, these two would be without difference if there were no clinging to a self and self-conceit in, in that latter state. Without discrimination, there would be the flaw of being without afflictions throughout one's entire rebirth as a god in such a state without discrimination. And therefore, there would be no you would not be in samsara. You would not be a god. A further reason is that the occurrence of clinging uh, to a self is observable in virtuous, non-virtuous, and neutral states of mind at all times. So even though you have virtuous and non-virtuous states of mind, there's, there's clinging. 
Uh, otherwise, if it were congruently associated socially, solely rather, with non-virtuous states of mind, the affliction of self-conceit would therefore only occur in those, but not in virtuous or neutral ones. And so suddenly your, your fixation on a self would be gone when you're, when you're cultivating compassion and wisdom. And you would be momentarily enlightened, and then you would lose that enlightened state. Uh, therefore, by virtue of the simultaneous occurrence, so these are, are both present, of uh, afflicted meditation with all virtuous, non-virtuous, neutral state of minds and occurrence in terms of being congruently associated together, these flaws will not accrue. Wow. Since meditation is afflicted, it is obscured, yet neutral. It is always congruently associated with the floor, obscuring afflictions. Phew. Furthermore, in the context of the explanation of the 18 daughters with the aspects of the three daughters of meditation, dharmas and mental consciousnesses are presented or when they are so that's the the uh 16 17 and 18th dot right mentation is the sense faculty dharmas are the objects of this the mental sense faculty and then mental consciousness is what arises when the mental sense faculty and the mental sense objects or dharmas are connected or are presented to express the immediate mind as the Datu of the sixth, the mental consciousness, just one particular way. It's limited, but when it's taught as the seventh, it's described as any one of the six consciousnesses, including the five that have just ceased. And uh, Vasubandhu's um, explanation of the five skandhas says the six Datus of consciousness depend on the eyes and so on cognizing their respective focal objects such as form and so forth, the dhatu of mentation is any one of these consciousnesses having just ceased because the locus of the sixth consciousness is stable. In this way, the dhatus are presented as 18. I think what he's saying, trying to say in a convoluted manner, is that while the first five uh, sense faculties have are limited to their own objects, and give rise to their own consciousness. The mental sense faculty can take all the other five consciousnesses and objects and faculties as its object. Instruction on the six collections and the order of the skandhas, and I'm way over time, oh my God. <laughs> Sorry about that, we'll continue some other time. Maybe I should skip parts of this. I hate skipping like the root the actual text, but uh, it's a little bit repetitive, eh? Well, I don't know. We'll, we'll, I'll continue to go through it slowly since uh, it's good to understand this stuff rather than fly through it. But it's like so convoluted. It's all this clunky terminology and stuff. It's very it's, uh, interesting that you know, is that the translation in English because it's like such unfamiliar schemes that everything has to be translated in these unfamiliar terms that are like multi, multi-word terms? Anyway. Yeah, like on relay. every second or third page, I have to like stop and rewrite in, in, the in English, in normal like, English. It was like, what did they say? And like, maybe this. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Put it. Put the sentence into normal 
word order. Anyway, I hope that's useful. <laughs> it's also slightly challenging because some of his objective obviously is to dispel the questions and challenges of other views like that last two pages is really just to sort of justify how they uh how they you know why they need those last couple of consciousnesses and why they have to split them the way they do yeah it's, i don't i don't think anybody here was complaining about it. i sort of went along with him and maybe we don't <laughs> need all of the explanations and and responses to objections because you know unless there are any anyway thank you very much by this merit may all obtain omniscience may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth old stage sickness and death from the ocean of samsara may i free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east may the lotus garden of the victim's wisdom bloom May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Thank you all for Thank you. Per persevering through that. <laughs> Hopefully results in something positive. Thank you. Nice to see you. Take care. Bye, guys. Bye. 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 Thanks.